Mighty Ape is Australia's entertainment and pop culture superstore. With everything from movies, music, games, toys, books, hobbies and more, Mighty Ape is your one-stop shop for the things that matter most. They constantly have hot deals and exclusive promos. And if you visit their website on the click-through banner on fakechef.net's homepage, then your purchase will help support Good Movie Monday. Mighty Ape, Australia's entertainment and pop culture superstore. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Morning. Good morning. Good morning. You mean to wish me a good morning? What do you mean that it is a good morning whether I want it or not? Please go away. Let me speak for the love of God. Did you know that if you remove all of the modern day scenes from Titanic, uh, the film runs at exactly two hours and 40 minutes, which is the precise amount of time that it took the ship to sink. Yes, uh, welcome to Good Movie Monday, and if you thought that was an interesting tidbit of trivia, then you're in for a treat, because this is our Did You Know episode, and there's lots more of that coming up. My name is Glenn Cochran, deliverer of trivia, and the other guy is my trusted cohort, some would say king of trivia, Ben Halwig. Hey, mate, how's things? It's good. I'm a bit worried now. I don't think any of my trivia is good as that Titanic one. That's uh, <laughs> I had no idea. That's quite the doozy, huh? Yeah, it is. I know that... Uh, I know that the painting that Leonardo DiCaprio is doing of Kate Winslet was painted by James Cameron. That's my Titanic trivia. Excellent. I'll strike that one off my list. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and in case you're wondering, I call you the king because firstly, you are the go-to guy whenever Monster Fest hosts a trivia night. And secondly, you also spent half of last week's show on the throne. Yeah. yeah, I did. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> and this show is presented by FakeShemp.net, home of the nerdy cinematic ramblings. Visit the website to see so much more of what we do here, including interviews, reviews, videos, and more. Good Movie Monday can also be found on most podcast hosting platforms such as Podbean, iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, and a stack of others. Take a moment to share us on your social media pages. Get your friends to jump on board and help us build a bigger and better show especially during these tricky times of crisis when sponsorship and funding resources are scarce. Now, before we open a can of that fun stuff, let's touch upon a few things that have been happening over the past week. In typical fashion, someone always seems to die mere hours after we record each episode, which means that by the time the show goes online, we've missed the opportunity to pay our respects in a timely manner. Last week, it was John Saxon, and while this week, we're saddened to hear about the passing of Alan Parker and Wilford Brimley. Alan Parker, Ben, this was a, a brilliant director with some amazing, iconic, and truly influential films to his name. Yeah, he had some great, uh, some great films to his name. Uh, some of my like all-time favourites, in fact. Yeah, I would agree. Um, like my personal go-to movies for his were The Commitments and Pink, yeah. Pink Floyd's The Wall. I think The Wall was one of those films when you're a teenager. It's like a rite of passage that you sort of you know, share it around with your mates, just because it's weird and strange and cool. And you know, if uh, yeah, that I mean, the whole Pink Floyd album <laughs> uh, was uh, super weird, and uh, yeah, the movie was uh, was did not improve on that weirdness, or <laughs> it's, it's or an did not banger. did not un unweird the uh, <laughs> the album. No, um, looks. I'm going to reel off a few of his films just to give you a, a sense of how prolific he was. Bugsy Malone, Midnight Express, Angela's Ashes, Angel Heart, Mississippi Burning, Fame, Birdie, Evita, Road to Wellville, and his final film was The Life of David Gale, amongst others. 
What an eclectic and diverse catalogue of films. Yeah, like considering that he was, I had no idea that he had done Mississippi Burning until yeah. like until I looked at, until I was looking it up for this, and uh, and to think that he like he's a he was a, like a hardcore Brit. Yes. Like you know he did it he, and he's done this you know what could be pretty much considered the kind of the watermark of kind of you know race films from that mm. from that time period from the from the eighties. And it's. Uh... I've always had that theory, though, that some of the most important and sort of, um, I guess, impactful films about certain cultures come from outsiders. I mean, look at Wake in Fright. Um, Nicholas Rogue came and did Walkabout. You know, these these are sort of it takes an outsider's perspective sometimes to shine a light. Yeah, that is true. Yeah. And Wilford Brimley. Wow, like Ben, I know you've had your photo taken with this guy. How the hell did you get a chance to meet the great man himself? I uh, I met him at uh, at a at a at a uh, fan festival called um, Son of Monster Palooza. Uh, it's a convention, I guess, a convention called Son of Monster Palooza, which they and they have this they have this uh, this convention called Monster Palooza, kind of in the in the first half of the year in in the US, and then at the second half they have this smaller version of it, which is the Son of Monster Palooza, and I. That's the one I always tend to catch because it's always on around Fantastic Fest time. So when I go over to the US to go to Fantastic Fest or Beyond Fest, yep. I stop off in LA and I go to to um, to to Santa Monster Palooza. And this year they had a Thing panel, right. so they had they had most of the cast there, including including Wilford. And uh, you know, he didn't remember a thing really about the thing, but he was just <laughs> he was grateful to have been in it. He was <laughs> grateful to have been given the job, and uh, he was grateful to be there. And he had. The softest, the softest hands I've ever held. <laughs> like babies have more calluses than this guy's hands. That's probably like his go-to answer for every film he's ever made. Yeah. Well, he was because he started off as a a kind of extra and just kind of worked his way up into yeah. bigger and bigger parts. I guess he was just super genuinely happy and to be in stuff. Another one of those actors that sort of came into their own at a latter age in their life. Um, yeah, I mean, oh, he was always an old man. Like he was, I've yeah. never seen him as a young man in anything. Like even in things like Absence of Malice and yep. and stuff like that, he was um, just a, an old, grumpy old man with a walrus mustache. Yes, well, even in Cocoon, the one film where he is actually a, almost a geriatric, he was the youngest of the cast. He was only yeah. in his like late 40s, I think, at the time. Yeah, but, right. I mean, this guy was a big deal. Let's go through a few of his films he was in the china syndrome uh brew baker as you said absence of malice the thing high road to china tender mercies the natural hard target for christ's sakes with, a, with an awesome cajun accent <laughs> in <laughs> hard target i would be a really lousy movie nerd if i didn't mention that he was in caravan of courage no no he wasn't in caravan of courage he's in the other one he's in battle for endor is it Battle for Endor? Yeah, he's okay. in the in the in the much worse sequel. <laughs> okay, let me let me rephrase it. I would be a lousy movie nerd if I did mention that he was in the Caravan of Courage. <laughs> I prefer Battle for Endor. I should have known that. Like I remember as a kid, I I remember liking like I was terrified by Caravan of Courage, but I was really terrified of Battle for Endor because of the monsters. But then when I went back and watched it, you know, it's probably ten years ago now. It was like, geez, this is bad. Like every every everything and everyone is bad in this movie. Like it's such a like badly made. That's the reason um, the third one never got made. Yeah, good good reason. Well, 
Well, he was 85 years old and passed away from a kidney condition. So very sad news there. Two legends, I guess you would say, passed away within one week. Paranormal TV fans. This week on Scarefest Television, Chris Sutton will be interviewing Brian Cano of Paranormal, Caught on Camera, and The Haunted Collector. Join us live this Friday at 9 p.m. Eastern Time Zone at scarefestradio.com or via Facebook and Twitter by following The Scarefest. And speaking of Scarefest, I do host another little podcast by the name of Scarefest Radio Reanimated. It's a fun half an hour show presented by the Scarefest Convention in Kentucky. Give it a listen. You can find it on the official Scarefest Facebook page. And while I'm at it, coming up on August 29th is Scarefest CyberCon, a brand new virtual convention that features celebrity guests, speakers, panels, vendors, and more. Tickets are only $5, and uh, it might just be a brand new type of convention experience. I'll be there on hosting duty, so be sure to find and like the Scarefest CyberCon Facebook event page, or visit the event's official website, which is scarefest.artfarm.tv. All right, mate, it's time to get trivial. Now, while you're limbering up over there, I might just take a moment to give everyone a heads up that next week we do have an exciting episode coming up. The master of horror himself, Mick Garris, will be on the show to discuss a whole range of things, and I can't wait to bring that one to you. Um, We've also got something very special lined up for the following episode. Uh, So as if we don't deliver the goods for you each week, we're going to be firing off two absolute bangers back to back. But anyway, Ben, how's that think tank gearing up? Yeah, good, good. I, uh, I've always been considered myself to be quite trivial, so uh, <laughs> you know this hasn't uh, hurt that that thought <laughs> process at all. Okay, now you and I have a real tendency to ramble, so maybe we just limit it to three pieces of trivia each. Okay. Would you like to go first? Uh, okay, okay, I can go first. <laughs> now I've got to. I'm, I'm just. I'm just trying to figure out which is my. Of my, of all the trivia that I gathered, which is the uh, the most uh, important? Uh, okay, I'll, I'll start with this one because it's a it's a filmmaker uh, near and dear to my heart. But you know, uh, Robert Altman's Mash, fantastic film. Everyone loves that film. I love it. One of the pivotal the pivotal scenes in Mash is the football sequence that happens in the second half of the film between yep. the Mash outfit and they they have a ringer. Fred Williamson comes in and uh, they take on another general's. Um, football team who also have a ringer. Well, all those football sequences were actually directed by schlock film, filmmaker Andy Sedaris. You're joking. They brought him in to do it because his day job was as a director of football on TV. Like he did all, like all of the, yeah. the live uh, NFL football coverage. So they brought him in and then they, they actually screwed up. He was supposed to be credited for it. They screwed up the crediting in the credits and, um, and what's the name? Uh, uh, Altman took all the credit for it, so they had to pay him out a large amount of money, which he then later used on his, uh, so we say, a busty filmography. Shall we say? Uh, <laughs> yeah. If you've ever, if you've ever, uh, you know, seen a, a Andy Sedaris film, you know what I'm talking about. Uh, such, such classics as uh, Hard Ticket to Hawaii or <laughs> Malib- with a, with the uh, <laughs> the frisbee with the razor blades on it mm. that decapitates. Uh, someone i think and, and uh, ron moss from days of our lives or hell yeah old and beautiful now, is i in. um i responded to your piece of trivia with a really forced 
you're joking, which really made it sound like I knew what you're talking about, but in actuality, I had no idea about that piece of right. trivia. So. <laughs> <laughs> you know, inflection means everything. Everything, yeah. <laughs> All right, my piece of trivia is that Beverly Hills Cop was originally a Sylvester Stallone film, and he even rewrote a couple of the earlier drafts on the script. Right. So, can you imagine Beverly Hills Cop as a Sylvester Stallone vehicle? No, I can't, but I know that because like I think there was a lot of concerns over Eddie Murphy's acting ability uh pre forty eight hours because he'd never he'd never acted in anything proper yep. before. And I know one of the pieces of trivia that I was going to talk about that I was that I've discarded due to the uh, limitations was that forty eight hours was originally supposed to be uh Clint Eastwood and Richard Pryor. But yes. uh they didn't think that, that was a good pairing in the seventies. That whole race thing wasn't uh, as yeah. uh, as popular as it as it would later become. But uh, I know that it was only because of the success of that that they considered because they I think there was like Beverly Hills Cop I think has a whole bunch of like rewrites and stuff like you know like there's a a massive kind of uh, trajectory from what that project started out into yep. what it became. Uh huh. Absolutely. And um, don't forget. Do not discard all of those uh, offcuts of trivia there because maybe we can use them in our video uh, I've got, on, tu- on Tuesday. I've got plenty of trivia, mate. Don't worry. There's no <laughs> – the well is not running and dry anytime soon. I'm glad one of us does. What's your What's your next one? Uh, my next one revolves around another favorite film of mine, uh, Street Fighter. <laughs> yeah. I'm sure that's a favorite of everyone out there uh, listening. That film famously stars uh, Jean-Claude Van Damme uh, as Guile, apparently there was a lot, there were a lot of problems on that set. Uh, Van Damme had a bit of a cocaine problem that uh, caused a lot of issues, and uh, he also apparently, according to him, had an affair with Kylie Minogue and uh, all Whatever. sorts of stuff. And yeah, I'm sure. Is this uh, around the time? Is this around the time that he got into a beef with Stephen Quatermain, the Channel Ten presenter? No, no, that <laughs> I remember that. That was around the, the Planet Hollywood <laughs> thing where he hit on Quatermain's yeah. wife. Yeah. It's like, not in my tan, pal, or whatever it was. It was great. It was a great <laughs> yeah. bit. Uh, no, <laughs> but funny enough, the piece of trivia that I, I wanted to bring up was the fact that to to play Guile. Jean-Claude Van Damme turned down the role of Johnny Cage in the Mortal Kombat film, <laughs> and the character of Johnny Cage in the game was actually based on Van Damme. Yeah, right. Oh, my God. Yeah, you know, which would then kind of go, like go and many, many years later lead into the awesome uh, Amazon web series Jean-Claude Van Johnson. <laughs> where he plays a secret he plays a secret agent Jean-Claude Van Johnson pretending to be Jean-Claude Van Damme and using <laughs> movies as an excuse to spy on foreign governments while oh, also mate. taking on versions of himself in Time Cop-esque yep uh paradoxes it's an amazing <laughs> series and I highly recommend it <laughs> I've only seen a little bit but it is good from what I have seen uh here's one for you Ace Ventura was originally written to be a Sylvester Stallone action comedy Wow, that that's, that uh, Sylvester Stallone gets around <laughs> and ditches a lot of <laughs> and ditches a lot of great. I mean, and yet Ryan he still made Rhinestone. He still made Over the Top. <laughs> Don't like, stop or my mum will shoot. <laughs> shop or my mum will shoot. Oscar, like he yeah. made a lot of films. <laughs> that, he did uh, well. Um, can you imagine Ace Ventura as an action comedy with Sylvester Stallone? I, I mean, a I'm, pet detective. <laughs> 
I'm just I'm imagining all of that like even that stuff as the courier at the start where he's kicking the package down the road like I'm just not seeing it like I'm sure I'm sure 90 percent of the brilliance of Ace Ventura is uh Jim Carrey's improvs well it is and I know that when Jim Carrey came on board even though he was you know relatively unknown he was unknown he'd only been on a, a television series and a couple of uh really shitty movies but he had the hey, condition Earth that he girls are read. easy is no <laughs> I was thinking of that um Copper Mountain Copper Mountain and uh, was it um, was that Maple Drive one? That was the other one he would, he'd done. That's right. <laughs> and then had he, I don't know if that was before or after. What was that? Uh, wasn't he in that one with Lauren Hutton where she's a vampire? Once bitten. Once bitten. That's right. Yeah. Isn't he the lead in? His, and he, he was nerd? in the Deadpool with Clint Eastwood. That's right. As the as like was it the Johnny Rotten esque? But his his name is like something like proper like that would go on to become <laughs> a proper name like it was See, like that is something cool where he's got the mohawk and everything here's the thing dude uh, like every single week we are essentially a trivia show because this is the kind of dialogue that we have with each other but um yeah no it, he stipulated in his contract that he would get to rewrite the script and that's where it became the ace venture that we know right all right what's your your final one for this uh portion of the show uh okay my final one is okay so everyone Everyone, I'm, I'm assuming everyone out there has seen Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. It's a, a classic of, of every, any genre. Every movie fan is watching it. And Sean Connery was always the pick to play uh, yeah. Henry Jones Sr. But yeah. just in case things didn't work out, <laughs> they had Gregory Peck lined up <laughs> to play Sr. And now this one I don't get. John Pertwee, what uh, from from uh, Wurzel? Is it from Wurzel Gummidge and uh, Doctor Who Doctor for a Who, while? Yeah. <laughs> like he was he they, he was in line to play That's Henry an Jones. Odd one. He was like an insurance policy. He was like just you know you got to have a name there to sort of you know try to rope someone else in. Your fallback, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, I thought you were going to go for the trivia that um, Last Crusade was originally written as a haunted. Castle film. Oh no! Oh, so it was there were there was a lot more tapestries in it originally. <laughs> That's right. A lot more, a lot more poor Scottish accents and tapestries. Yes, gonna caught myself a snuffle. <laughs> <laughs> but George Lucas wrote that that installment was a, a haunted castle film, and because they never went through with it, that storyline kind of got sort of uh, fed into the young Indiana Jones TV series. Right. So it still exists in an episode there, but yeah, no, because he wanted to make Indiana Jones a lot more supernatural than what it was. Well, I mean, I heard I was when I was reading up about this, I heard that Steven Spielberg essentially made Last Crusade because he'd always wanted to make make a Bond film. So a lot of the people in it are all like ex Bond villains and James Bond himself, but also to atone for Temple of Doom, which I guess. Like now, looking back, it's a phenomenal film, and everyone loves it. But I guess at the time, maybe maybe not so much. After he was he was really precious about his reputation, and Temple of Doom was a very dark film. And right. The only positive he still to this day takes from it is the fact that he met his wife on the set. Yeah, but I mean, like, it's I mean, got but like, it is a brilliant film. Yeah, it's got some great. Like, it, I mean, I I think that the heart ripping out stuff, like it all, like cranks Indiana Jones up a notch. Yeah, like all I, that stuff. I completely All, uh, agree. The only bummer to it, which is not a big deal, is the fact that it's out of sequence because it's the prequel to Raiders. Yeah, right. Yeah, but well, weren't they kind of all? Isn't even Last Crusade supposed to kind of be before? Because Marion is supposed to be 
like his his stuff with Marion, like he takes the break and then then it's Crystal Skull or whatever the hell it is. But Marion is the and there's there's some there's some cancel culture stuff going on with that Marion character in those (laughs) in those notes that uh, you know where they thought it'd be hilarious to to have made. Him had an affair with her when she was eleven and he was twenty five. Oh my! That's goodness. the backstory. You, <laughs> Which... you back you backtracked to any movie that came before two thousand and twenty, and I guess it could be cancelled. Cancelled, yeah. I mean, but that I mean that's a bit full on. Hey, this is Jarrett, and welcome to PE Class. Now it's another odd week for home entertainment, and I'm pretty sure that I'm going to be saying that for the remainder of the year, probably into early next year as well. In any case, this week is odd as the only two movie releases hitting home entertainment are both genre films, one new and one classic. First up, we've got from Roadshow Deep Blue Sea 3, yes that's right, the third installment in the illustrious Deep Blue Sea franchise. If you weren't aware, they made a sequel to Deep Blue Sea, yes that film that came out in 1999 and had an incredible uh, Samuel L. Jackson shark kill, they made a sequel to that almost 20 years later in 2018 with a rather imaginatively titled Deep Blue Sea 2. Now they've gone back to the well for Deep Blue Sea 3 and it's hitting home entertainment this week on DVD and Blu-ray. I haven't seen it. Will I watch it? Of course I will. Will it be any good? Highly unlikely. Then coming out from Universal Sony Pictures Home Entertainment is the Friday the 13th Blu-ray collection. This collects all the Friday the 13th films in the Paramount catalogue. So that's parts one through eight, and it's loaded with special features. This is pretty much a carbon copy of the set that was released in the UK last October, and the set that was released in the US about four years ago. Now it is true this set does not include the New Line films, Jason X or Jason Goes to Hell. But that said, you get a lot of bang for your buck. It's got a retail price of around $90, and if you are a diehard fan, then you probably already pre-ordered the Friday the 13th set that's coming out in the United States in October. That set has all the films plus new and archival content. However, it will set you back somewhere in the league of around $250. So yeah, it's a big commitment. But if you're a casual fan, then this Blu-ray set is for you. Now I'm going to throw out a trivia question to the lads. So Glenn and Ben, tell me. What famous filmmaker appeared in Jason X? And for extra points, I want to know another horror movie that this director has acted in, in in more than just a cameo too, in an actual role. In any case, that's me for this week. So until next time, stay physical.
recognize that voice. Uh-huh. It is Jack Skellington himself, the legendary Danny Elfman, and the song was called Gratitude, and it's from the Beverly Hills Cop soundtrack of all places. And I apologize to anybody that's listening in Denmark, which is the only territory where the licensing for that song prohibits us from playing it. So I hope you enjoyed those four minutes of silence. And to answer Jarrett's trivia question from his segment, David Cronenberg, uh, cameoed in Jason X and also played the lead villain in Clive Barker's Nightbreed. I thought he'd throw a pricklier piece of trivia at us than that one. I do love that uh, Jason X. It's probably my favourite mm. recent Jason Jason movie. A moment ago we are talking about how Temple of Doom is that one that's appreciated over time and is now considered by many to actually be the best instalment and Jason X is the same thing. It got ridiculed at the time but you go back and watch it retrospectively i think it's a damn good sequel and it's it's especially good if you're a fan of of that dodgy science fiction show andromeda with kevin sorbo because <laughs> yeah. i think the guy who directed jason x also directed a bunch of episodes of that show and so most of the female cast are actually from andromeda and you get to see them all get killed in horrific ways i wish i could remember that guy's name it's isaac something uh the guy directed he died a few years ago sadly oh, no. he also made the film pig hunt oh right did he die just before an episode? Just just before we recorded an episode? <laughs> he probably did. Just after, just after. So, a belated uh, respects to him, Isaac, yeah. whatever your name is. Oh, I feel bad. Anyway, uh, this week, uh, Guillermo is taking a much-earned break, which means that we can go a little bit longer for this part of the show. So, why not go four nuggets of trivia each? Sound good? Okay. All right. Uh, by the way, um, do give Screen Realm some love in. Visit their website, all their social media pages. It's um, it's tough running a website like theirs in this COVID age, and believe me, I know. Uh, so do engage with them and show Guillermo that you care. Uh, Rodeo, Ben, I'll go first this time. All right. In the Matrix, the green coding that scrolls down the screen is actually symbols from a sushi cookbook. Yeah. Now, funnily enough, <laughs> I did know this one. <laughs> love that. It's great. It's like yeah, he like manipulated the hell out of it and turned the computer, the sushi recipe to it's a <laughs> Matrix computer code. Hmm. Yeah. Well, it's, you know, it's it's not the the best piece of trivia, but it's it's a piece of trivia nonetheless. It's a piece of trivia. I've got uh, I've got a I've got an even less exciting piece of trivia. Okay. my first one. Well, actually, I I I'm super excited. I was super excited when I when I figured it out and I didn't have to look it up. But like when I when I saw it, I was like, hang on a second. But um, Jim Wynorski. One of my favorite <laughs> filmmakers, and yeah. always, always uh, looking for an excuse to to mention uh-huh. Big Jim. Jim Wynorski is your Albert Pune. He is my Albert Pune. Yes, yes. <laughs> but I've never actually sp- spoken to him or 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 met him, unlike you and and Albert. 
we'll, we'll uh, try to we'll arrange that. We'll arrange get that make that happen. Um, Jim Minorsky like was always using pseudonyms on his films. Yep, uh, always. And uh, one of my favorites, uh, Deathstalker Two, he uses he used the pseudonym Arch Stanton. Do you know where that where that name is from? No, I don't. It is the name on the grave next to where all the gold is buried in the good, the bad, and the ugly. That there, you oh. know, and the, the showdown at, at the graveyard at the end. So that's his only way of getting some kind of pres- prestige into <laughs> his work. Oh no, he had like he had you know John Tulesky <laughs> and Monique Gabrielle in that film. <laughs> it was, it was yeah, <laughs> that's, that was a that was very prestigious. <laughs> there was some pig. Guy, I think there was a, some pig men in there, and uh, it was all it was all shot on the sets of all those like tombs of the blind dead and stuff because it was all it was shot in I think in Argentina, and it was all on the old kind of gothic horror sets that they that they just got for free and stuff that they could use right next to apparently right next to a highway, so recording sound <laughs> was impossible. They had to loop the whole film. Oh wow! Well, my next piece of trivia uh, is from a film that I'm surprised hasn't been the uh, under the spotlight of cancel culture, Wizard of Oz. Did you know that the snow that they used in the Wizard of Oz when Dorothy wakes up from her sleep was asbestos? No, but that explains <laughs> a lot about the spate of little people deaths uh, post that film. Oh my goodness! Jeez. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of that film that. Um, you really could pick apart and you know and and lump it in with Gone with the Wind, obviously being made at the same time, makes sense. Yeah, right. I love The Wizard of Oz. I think it's like the the penultimate family film. Totally, yeah. totally. It's a great great film. It's a and the a sequel film? is even better. <laughs> Return to Oz is freaking great. Terrifying, absolutely. Uh, terrifying. I I am a like I'm an unabashed fan of. Um, the Balm books, like all of the Wizard of Oz books, which there yep. are fourteen. There are fourteen original ones, and then it continues with other writers into something like forty volumes or whatever. But those first fourteen, I think it is. I wish they would get adapted faithfully for the screen in some capacity. There's so much goodness in there. I know Sam Raimi tried to sort of flesh it out a little bit with his, um, you know, what was his one called? Oh, I've forgotten. Oh, the Oz, Oz the Great Oz. and Powerful. Are you trying to tell me that the uh, Sci-Fi Channel miniseries Tin Men is wasn't a <laughs> Tin Man wasn't a faithful adaptation uh, of the Frank Dorothy, Bell novels? Dorothy's name was DG. D, yeah, yeah. yeah DG. <laughs> wow. <laughs> and the Tin Man was a sheriff. Yeah. <laughs> exactly <laughs> like the books, right? I know. Um, we've got Mick Garris on the show next week. He directed the pilot episode for. One of the earlier Oz TV shows that um, they were trying to make, like Oz the Prison series. <laughs> I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> the second I started talking, I couldn't stop, and I knew you'd jump in. <laughs> no, it was like Emerald City or something like that. Um, back in the right. early two thousands, which he shot in Brisbane, I think. Anyway, oh right. More useless trivia. You're next. Oh me? Okay. Uh, okay, this is a weird bit of trivia. Um, yeah, Clint Eastwood, uh, in the in the late seventies, made a wonderful film called Every Which Way But Loose, <laughs> yeah. and at the time that was his kind of foray into action comedy. Prior to that, he'd just been doing kind of the more kind of Dirty Harry yep. type serious action films kind of thing. He hadn't done the comedy, but he was kind of 
at war with a good friend of his, Burt Reynolds, for who was the number one kind of box office, you know, male lead box office draw kind of thing. Yep. And when he did everyone, every which way but loose, Burt Reynolds sent him a note saying, hey, hang on a second. Action comedy's my bag, baby. <laughs> uh, so, you know, he was firmly entrenched in smoking the bandit territory. So, yep. goes, so if you're going to start doing this, then I'm going to start doing serious uh, action films. And so he ended up doing uh, Sharky's Machine. Yep. Which was his one. And originally that was actually supposed to be directed by John Borman, but he was like waist deep in the nightmare that became Excalibur. Yes. Uh, which I, I, I love, but I, I, I understand the filmmaking was, was a nightmare. But so he ended up get, just telling, he actually was the one who said, to, who told Bert that maybe, maybe you should direct that. Just do it yourself, mate. And, uh, and how did cast... that work out for him? Yeah, well, I mean, I look, Sharky's Machine is an excellent film, like a surprisingly kind of dark film. And it, I think it, I think it might be the first. Is it Rachel Ward's first first film? I think because he spotted her on like the pages of a fashion magazine at the time, and was like, "Yeah, right, I'll, I'll have <laughs> I'll a crack at that." <laughs> yeah, I'll give that a shot. That's a great piece of trivia. Yeah, didn't know that. All right, here's one for you. This was one of my favorite pieces of trivia as a teenager. Uh, I guess it's common knowledge to many people, but Quentin Tarantino was a ghostwriter and or script doctor on Crimson Tide and It's Pat, the SNL movie. Oh, I had no idea about It's Pat. I knew the Crimson Tide, all that Silver Surfer stuff is is Tarantino. It's Pat is connected to Pulp Fiction because... <laughs> As a favor to Julia Sweeney, who was the star and writer of It's Pat, Tarantino came in to clean up the script, make it a bit more presentable, and in turn, she starred as the junkyard's daughter in right, Pulp yeah. Fiction. In Pulp Fiction, so that was yeah. all happening at the same time. They were bouncing between sort of sets. Right, that's all to at the same time. It's Pat coexisted with Pulp Fiction for a with while, Pulp like, Fiction. within yeah, each other's right. universe. I look. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to touch upon a bit more SNL-ish kind of stuff a bit later, but It's Pat is one that I am really disappointed I didn't bring up last week. <laughs> yeah, as your favourite SNL movies. As you were just trying to work out how to get it that uh, the Stuart Smalley movie that uh, never happened. Uh, uh, Stuart in Saves the World. Yeah, Stuart Saves the World. Yeah. Oh, no, it did we'll happen. That's right, it did, yeah. It, it did happen. We'll get it did happen. It totally minute. got made. In a minute. Um, anyway, your turn for another piece. Uh Okay. Um, did you know that uh, Corey Haim actually auditioned for the role of Mouth in The Goonies that actually went to Corey Feldman? And they they hadn't met. They didn't meet until two years later when they did The Lost Boys yep. uh, and became best buddies and uh, uh, and whatnot. But uh, I, they I, actually I, I both, did not. I did not know that. Both and auditioned I cannot, for uh, I cannot Goonies. imagine him in that role. No, it would have been a very different film. It would have been like River Phoenix being cast in that role. Like they're they're much they're much more Mikey type characters than uh, Yeah, you could imagine him maybe doing the um the, the Feldman role in Gremlins or something. Yeah, totally. But but definitely not he he's not, not the Mouth. character actor that, that Feldman is. Yeah. No, and he's like Mouth is a is a definitely needs that kind of like he had so much more personality. Yes. Uh, I think then Haim. Haim was always like the pretty boy and Feldman was the personality and uh, Mouth was definitely more personality than <laughs> than uh, pretty face. 
Well, that's an awesome one. Here's my final bit for this part of the show. Did you know in Fight Club, there is a Starbucks cup in every scene? Yes, except one. Except, except one. Well, you're all over this, my friend. Which one? Yeah. Uh, it's the scene where, the, I think it's the scene where the city blows up and stuff because they didn't want to be seen to be being destroyed. All right. Is I reckon right? there'd be a cup in there somewhere. Is that- cheeky, <laughs> cheeky cup. They just Somewhere just in the city that. at that time, there was a Starbucks cup. Well, knowing what America's like, tell me there wasn't a Starbucks in that city. In that city. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Good point. Good point. Well made. <laughs> and do you have a final piece? Uh, I do have a final piece. Did you know that uh, Penny Marshall originally wanted to cast John Travolta as Josh Baskin in Big? I thought you were going to say as Lenny in Laverne and (laughs) (laughs) That would have been amazing as well. But no, no, in in Big, but at the time the studio thought he was box office poison and Mm. said no. Yeah right. Well, because uh, he would you, have been doing, he would have been doing. Look who's talking just after that, yeah. Yeah, pro- yeah, would have been not not long after. And apparently, though, Steven Spielberg was set to direct Big, mm-hmm. but he had to decline because of his duties on Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. Yeah, I did know so that. T- tying it all in. Uh, is there not uh, some Steven Spielberg touching there? I think he might have done one of those silent producer kind of credits for that one. Like, you know, he's put his name to things and then he's produced things and he hasn't put his name to them. I think that's one of those. Yeah, right. It would make sense because it is such a a good kind of family yeah. Spielbergian film. Except for the concept itself, cancel culture, hello. No, no. Well, yeah, this yeah, no. 12-year-old boy has sex with this, what, 30-year-old woman? It's every 12-year-old boy's dream. I don't know what... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what. what there's Let's, no twelve-year-old boys. Well, like, I don't like, remember nah. that. I don't remember nah. that happening in the remake. Little with yeah. the girl, the role reversal. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> hey, <laughs> it's it's the fun size part that's stupid to me. I mean, it was the best title we came up with. I well, oddly agree. enough, Joe, that's interesting because the Bonehead Weekly part is stupid to our viewers. Oh, welcome to Bonehead Weekly Fun Size. Today's topic is our favorite Australian films. It's, uh, you know, it's really hard because I think about the ones that were big when I was growing up. If you know anything about Australia, the, the history of <laughs> no, Australia. Obviously not. We don't know jack shit. We don't know kangaroo jack shit about Australia. Oh, the, I'm so, the, oh man. The history of Australia is really, really interesting because it gave birth to one of the biggest legends of all time. And it's told with 100% accuracy, uh, Reckless Kelly, which stars National Treasure, I assume, Yahoo Serious. Do I, they I, have him on huge statues? I hate you, James I, Thomas. I, I hate just, you. I mean, if you've never seen Reckless Kelly, a lot of people know Yahoo Serious for his excellent, excellent autobiography of Albert Einstein, creatively titled Young Einstein. Now, a lot of people remember that one. I actually Somehow, saw that in the theater. No shit. Somehow, Reckless Kelly gets le- less remembered, and which is a crime because yes, it, it is. is just as historically accurate, just as essential to understanding where Australia is as a country today. And I think more people need to see Reckless Kelly. He gets Dad? shot with he gets shot with bullet holes, and it doesn't affect him. He just has air come out of him. You think you know? I've actually never seen it. What? See, this is why you don't know anything about Australia. Obviously. This is why you get confused. News. Obviously. It, in the first Everything I learned from Australia, I learned from Paul Hogan. 
in the first 10 minutes of watching Reckless Kelly, it will plainly demonstrate to you that New Zealand and Australia are different places, and they're separated just as far as Sarah Palin was from Russia. <laughs> Is that timely? That's still timely? That's not timely. That's not timely. All right, Chad. Well, James took my <laughs> – that's yours? That was mine. I was like, oh, excited. Like, no, neither one of you is going to say Reckless Kelly. So uh, I'll just go on a whim and say, uh, you know what's the best Crocodile Dundee movie? The one in part three where he's in Los Angeles. That doesn't even take place in Australia, sir. No. It's, Actually, wait, wouldn't now, the second Crocodile Dundee be the most Australian? Because the first one takes place mostly in New York. New York. Now, I got a question, though. Isn't Los Angeles the Australia of America? No, no. Well, what would be the Australia of America? That's what we, you know what? If you're Texas? listening to us right now, Oklahoma, you go ahead and you do something with that. Show no, Barbie. And you go ahead and you contact James dot Thomas at who gives a damn.com <laughs> and tell us what is the Australia of America? By the way, there's somebody with that website right now. That's going to be like, why the hell am I getting these emails? You don't understand. I'm James Thomas at now who gives a dev.com and I'm angry right now. With all these Australians. So let's, let's recap real quick in the minute that we have left that our joke episode about best movie from Australia. What? One, one was a, Reckless one was a Lord of the Joe, Rings. Joe telling not a funny joke. And Lord me and James both you didn't even have Kelly. one. All you had was his. You've been taking his stuff. I had mine first. Oh my God, are you Australian? See, it's a prison colony joke. See, and now England back in the day. They sent them all down there because every fifth animal was murderous. The Botany Bay, Chad. Google it. Bay. It's a place to get stuff to do stuff with. <laughs> We just gave them free advertising. No hey, now, now Australian's tourism board is going to steal Joe's, Joe's line. <laughs> Every fifth animal is murderous. Cut <laughs> to a kangaroo <laughs> with a machete. By the way, oh I should God. say my backup was Kangaroo Jack. If, if, if Chad would have went first, I was going to say Kangaroo Jack. Nah. It's not Christopher Walken, who is an Australian trader. This is going far too long. Yes. Yeah, so All right, we'll it. stop. Kangaroo Jack would have been my backup. We'll do another one where we actually give you legitimate movies. That were shot in America about Australia. <laughs> <laughs> Doodles. <laughs> well, of course, those bonehead guys were taking the piss, just in case you didn't get that. Um, but I'll be damned if Young Einstein and Reckless Kelly aren't stone cold classics. I think Kangaroo Jack is a bit of a classic myself. Oh, well, you know, I do like Kangaroo Jack, and I don't know why. Maybe it's the Anthony Anderson thing. He's hilarious in it. Yeah. Jerry O'Connell. It's good or good. Jackie Legs. Yeah. <laughs> hey guys, it's Adam here from Adam's Just Seen with another Good Movie Monday recommendation. This week I am recommending a musical. Yes, you heard that right. Now, if you put me in a corner and you bullied me, I would probably tell you that my least favourite cinematic genre is the musical. But if you incorporate musical performance into your drama or your comedy, then uh, you're way, way more likely to get me on side. And that's what director John Carney does here in his film Sing Street. Now, I was avoiding Sing Street because I thought it was just another musical, but it just incorporates musical performance. So if you have the same kind of aversion that I had 
just dump that and get on board with this movie because this is one of the best coming of age tales. Well, you know, I mean, definitely of our generational one that I've ever kind of seen. Set in 1985 in Ireland, uh, you know, every character kind of knows how shit their situation is here and it permeates the film with a real sarcasm and a real wit. Connor, our protagonist, has got to go to the Christian Brothers School, which is as bad as it sounds, and uh, the only thing that's saving him at this point is music, and his exposure to music by his really charming older brother, Brendan, who is played here by Jack Raynor in a really kind of breakout performance. Connor decides that he's going to use music to seduce the girl that he likes that's been hovering outside the school. Now, if it sounds cute, it's because it is incredibly cute. But what this film does is that it, it's going on a kind of cute trajectory and then it transcends into the profound. And by the time this movie actually pull, you know, like lands its punches, it actually hits you, man, it rocks. And it got me so hard that I actually had to go and have a time out afterwards. Uh, every performance in this movie is so infectious and so charming that you wouldn't believe that most of these people are newcomers. You feel like that you've seen them before and they're so confident. And that is a testament to Carney's direction here which is is just excellent and the cumulative effect of this movie is just you know one of the best movies of you know of recent years so five stars for me uh, for a movie musical so who would have thought so yeah definitely so drop any kind of pretenses it's on stand at the moment check it out it's just you know it's a goddamn antidepressant it's a fantastic movie see it ASAP now we're entering the final stretch and this is where we recommend movies for you Dear listener, uh, neither of us knows what the other will be choosing, but we certainly hope that when we pick these, they pique your interest enough to track them down. But this is also an excellent opportunity to recap on last week's SNL movies. We had two decent conversations about Saturday Night Live films, but we left out a bunch of them. So I have chosen an SNL movie for my recommendation. But before I reveal what that is, let me just reel off a few titles that we never mentioned last week. We didn't talk about Coneheads. What have you done to your cone? We didn't talk about. <laughs> we didn't talk about Night at the Roxbury. Oh, what a classic! Emilio. We didn't talk about Magruba. It's Pat Bob Roberts, Mister Saturday Night, and Stuart Saves His Family. Yeah, all classics. All classics. And they are, they are all uh, their definition. When you, you know, look up Wiki or wherever, the definition of an SNL film is that it. It features characters that were originated on the show. So does Corky Romano count? It must. Well, that's was that a character? I don't think it was. I don't think it was, but I'm glad I brought it up because there's no other reason in the world that anyone would ever bring up Corky Romano if I hadn't have brought it up <laughs> last week. I prefer our definition uh, and our parameters, so yeah. to hell with Wiki. Yeah. I mean, hell, if you're in SNL for, for at least a season and you made a movie, <laughs> it's an SNL movie. Anyway, perhaps that will inspire a deep dive into the world of SNL, or maybe not. But I have uh, a film I want to recommend that um, I hope many of you have seen already, but if you haven't, then you must get onto it. It is A Mighty Wind, the mostly improvised mockumentary from Christopher Guest and his regular cast of cohorts. Now, this one is classed as an SNL film because the folksman first appeared in the sketches of SNL back in 1984. Oh, and the the not-quite-ready-for-prime-time players. They uh, were on... They were on, yeah, that's right. Yeah, and, right. Um, that was the same year that Spinal Tap was released. And so they did not originate from any other place. And I think, personally speaking, I think this is Guest's best film. I don't really consider Spinal Tap his because it's a Rob Reiner film. I, it's actually, funnily enough, it is the only Christopher Guest film I've seen. Wow, there you go. Well, and I, I, and I loved it. I thought it was great. 
I think it's painfully hilarious. I think it's infinitely quotable. Every single player is at peak performance in this one. The stuff between Eugene Levy and Catherine O'Hara is just heartbreakingly beautiful. The dynamics between um, oh, what's name? Parker Posey, Michael Higgins, and uh, Jane Lynch. Hysterical. I thought it was the first thing I, I remember seeing Jane Lynch in like in a in a kind of meaty role and yeah. her her when she's talking about her her dubious past which is like i was in oh, an adult she's film pers- when not she so tiny her tim. lips yeah, she, yeah. <laughs> just not so tiny tim and you're like this, <laughs> this is hilarious oh look it is and uh, even the stuff between shira and Gaston mckean it's yeah. phenomenal like i mean obviously they've got a 30 year history going on there but all of them Having you know made all these other movies together like Best in Show and Waiting for Guffman, they were already in their groove by the time this one came along, and I just think it really shows. And I really like the music. The music is really good. It's really good. Yeah, absolutely. It's, like the, um, the title track, that mighty wind. I used to play it. I used to put the DVD in the in at the video store and just play the have the menu go because it was yeah. the song that would just loop, <laughs> just well, loop that song. I mean, I would hope that everyone knows what this film is because when Fred Fred Willard died, we um we played many uh, excerpts from his scenes. You know, <laughs> his stuff in that is you know, I guess film defining. I would say, mm. I can't do my work. <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> I got a real man wagon. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god, love it, love it, love it. But anyway, it's currently available as a digital rental or purchase on iTunes, Apple TV, and YouTube. Ben, what have you got for us? Uh, well, look, I people who know me in, in in real life know that I talk about this film all the time, and it actually they I think they've got to the point where they just wish I would shut up about it. <laughs> uh, it is 2005's Kingdom of Heaven, directed by <laughs> Ridley Scott. I love this film, and I'm not talking about like I thought the the truncated theatrical version was was pretty good, but the two and a half hour extended cut <laughs> is, is it's like a completely different film, and it is excellent. It now he, if you he he is a sucker for director's cuts. Do you think he deliberately makes slightly inferior movies just so he can go ahead and do a director's cut? Well, I think no. Like listening to the commentary on the on the on the two and a half hour version, it was he rants about how he turned in the two and a half hour cut. And the studio overrode him and forced him to cut it down. And he's like, you know, you'd think that with my back yeah. catalogue of films that people would understand that maybe I have an idea about how to make a movie yep. and what will work. And they still come along and try and tell me what to do. And this is the result. So, and he, like, he's, it's a fascinating commentary actually, but the, there is a massive subplot that involves uh, the Eva Green character's uh, son, and like for people who don't know what the movie's about, it's basically set during the Crusades. And Orlando Bloom is a young blacksmith who finds out that his father, kind of his 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 father, uh, is played by Liam Neeson, who's a, a knight who's in the middle of the Crusades, and he kind of finds out that he got, like that Liam Neeson may or may or may or may not have raped his mother, and that's how he was conceived. She was a she was a um a maid at this uh, his cousin's castle kind of thing and he claims that you know even though that you know she was already married to uh Orlando Bloom's uh, stepfather that she was you know more than happy to sleep with him and stuff but he basically kind of gives him the chance to come to um uh 
Jerusalem with him and take part in the Crusades. And he's got kind of nothing, nothing else going for him. His wife has just killed herself uh, after she lost a child, and it's a very dark, <laughs> very dark yeah. beginning. But so he basically so he basically goes to Jerusalem and then um, kind of becomes friends with the king, who's played by who I don't actually know if, if he comes into the shorter version, but it's played by Edward Norton, who you never see his face because he uh, the character is suffering horribly from leprosy and he, all his bits are dropping off and he's got no nose and it's all gross yep. and yuck and stuff but he, he you know he's still trying to do the right thing and not uh he, he trying to live in he's trying to live in harmony with the uh the saracens whereas there's this um like the knights templar are kind of in the background trying to stir things up because they believe that uh that um god will will uh lead them to victory and stuff and there's it's like it's just an awesome it's an awesome film it's an awesome yeah. film but there is a massive subplot eva green is edward norton's wife and she has a kid and this that whole subplot, and he, you know, he kind of turns out that he may or may not have leprosy as well, and all of that <laughs> stuff kind of is cut completely out of the film. And it, when you go back after you've seen the two and a half hour version, you go back and watch the 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 you know ninety minute version. You're like, hang on a second, the yeah. whole the motivations for any of the characters in this film <laughs> make no sense. I think Ridley Scott is a sucker here because I think the studio just knows that there's a director's cut to be profited upon. You know? To be marked, marketed. I mean, like, the, yeah. the funny thing is, like, you can get the Blu-ray. The Blu-ray is always cheaper, JB. The yeah. the director's cut. I don't even know if you can get the other cut anymore. And I don't know if it's... I don't think it's on this version. But the DVD, the special edition DVD, that was like a three-disc. Yes. And it was like... It was like watching Laserdisc again because it got to the point where you had to take the disc out and put yep. the next disc in because they didn't want to sacrifice quality that's, for... That's the um, copy I own. Yeah, which was... I had to import that. Like, it was it was an amazing um, yeah. well, uh, DVD. Yeah, well, there you go. Awesome recommendation. Uh, the way you described the opening sounded a little bit like Eric the Viking, but, you know... <laughs> <laughs> There's no actual... You don't... Like, Eric the Viking, the, you... They're all participating in the in the raping <laughs> yeah. at the start of that film. Oh, there's no wow. there's no visible raping in this film. Okay, well, speaking of types of raping, we are at the ass end of the show. <laughs> Thanks for sticking with us. As now always. That's a, the, the segue <laughs> of segues. That's, as a, that's always, amazing. It's been, it's been a heap of fun. <laughs> thanks to Jarrett. Adam and the guys at Bonehead Weekly and a big thanks to you too, Ben. It's always heaps of fun. Don't forget to come back next week to hear our exclusive interview with Hollywood legend Mick Garris. It's going to be a sensational show. And also remember to look us up on Facebook and YouTube where our midweek videos drop on Tuesdays and Thursdays. And if you like what you hear now, then you'll love what you see then. So we're going to leave you with the song from A Mighty Wind. It's a cute little ditty called When You're Next to Me, performed by Eugene Levy and Catherine O'Hara, a.k.a. Mitch and Mickey. Have a good week, everyone. Look after yourselves, and we'll see you next Monday. When I'm standing next to you there's a song to sing I know everything's feeling right When I'm standing next to you Steeple bells ring Only good things do I see When you're next to me When I hold your hand in mine Different world wakes A new morning breaks with the sun
sun when I hold your hand in mine children's dreams take flight through a starlit night that's what I see when you're next to me this love for you I'm feeling has a power that is healing it can bend the darkest hour with glorious light when I taste your lips so sweet I see beggars dying in the sands of time up and stop When I taste your lips so sweet Black and white bend every dove lands at your feet When you're next to me love for you I'm feeling has a power that is healing it can bend the darkest hour with glorious light when I'm lying next to you I feel moonbeams burn I see rainbows turn into gold when I'm lying next to you I hear angels play, I see sweeter days, I see rivers wind through the end of time, I see hatred fall from the highest hill, I see God's good grace shining in. What I see when you're next to me.